This audio presentation is from the Pardee Rand Graduate School's International Development Speaker Series. Our mission is to stimulate ideas that help improve the human condition globally, one speaker at a time. Our series features thought leaders and practitioners who affect transformative change through their research and practice. Our speakers are chosen for intellectual excellence, real-world policy experience, and public speaking abilities. For more on the IDSS, please visit www.prgs.edu slash IDSS. Welcome, everyone, uh, to the International Development Speaker Series. It's a pleasure to have Dilip Mukherjee and his seminar about uh, agriculture development and public policy in West Bengal. Um, he's a professor of economics uh, and the director of the Institute for Economic Development at Boston University, and thanks for coming. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, my first time to the school. Um, do you think it's better if I'm sitting in terms of the uh, the picking up the sound? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to sit or stand, whichever. Yeah, okay, good. All right. <coughs> yeah, do you see me in Yeah. Okay, so the talk is... Uh, you know, it's a bit different from the usual seminar talk. The usual seminar talk is a particular paper where you go into one issue in a great deal of depth. And I thought given the uh, orientation towards public policy here, and since many of you may not know that much about West Bengal, I thought I'll give you more of an overview. So I'm going to talk about uh, research that I've been doing on, on this state in India uh, for uh, over 15 years now. So it's really... Uh, giving you some kind of overview of the overall research project. And so I'm, I'll be talking initially about research that is already published uh, and then going on to research which is currently ongoing. It's just as, I think, as time goes by, you know, and events unfold in West Bengal, uh, sort of new issues uh, need to be researched. So I'll give you a sense of, you know, that evolving agenda here. <clears throat> Okay, so just by way of introduction, uh, West Bengal is a state in eastern India bordering Bangladesh. It's a population of 91 million, of which uh, 62 million reside in rural areas. So it's predominantly rural. In terms of per capita income and human development, uh, West Bengal is very much in the middle of India, okay, both in terms of averages as well as if you rank different states, uh, uh, it's pretty much in the middle. So to give you an idea, monthly per capita expenditure in 2009-10, non-PPP adjusted, uh, was rupees 952 in West Bengal and uh, slightly below the All India average. And that was uh, using the exchange rate uh, for that year, amounts to 50 cents a day. Sounds meager, but then that's non-PPP adjusted. So I think the PPP adjustment involves multiplying by something like five. So it's like two and a half dollars a day. And the literacy rate in West Bengal, 77% uh, is against 74% for all India. <clears throat> so here is a map of the state. Uh, How is the literacy rate defined? Like I know sometimes like the definitions sort of differ. Uh, yeah, I just picked this off the statistical abstract of the state, so I'm not exactly sure. Okay. <laughs> and I think I'm usually, your name I think it's something like that. It's the, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's supposed to be the equivalent of yeah, a certain amount of, yeah, I, I think that's probably it. Okay. Uh, but I think they expect fourth grade schooling. 
the literacy, uh, the equivalent of fourth grade. <clears throat> there are a lot of, uh, you know, un dispute about the numbers, okay, and the official numbers in particular. And also, just enrollment in school is very different from mastery of, you know, yeah. the required skills. So, yeah. So, with that provided, I'm just trying to give you an idea of it's roughly where India is. Okay. So, if you see that, uh, if you see that, uh, that yellow, that's India as a whole, and this is West Bengal. Okay. And this is the state blown up. And this is the Bay of Bengal. This is Bangladesh. Uh, these are neighboring states in India, Orissa, Jharkhand, Bihar, Nepal. Nepal is a different country, Bhutan, uh, and there is this sort of long, narrow funnel going into what is called North Bengal. Okay, so North Bengal, and then this is Gangetic West Bengal because the, the river is flowing in here, and the soil is pretty fertile. Uh, and it's a very high density of population, one of the highest density uh, in India. Okay, some background facts might be useful. So in terms of state politics, <clears throat> Until 1967, the, the state politics was dominated by the, the Indian National Congress, uh, which, was, which has been the dominant party associated with India's freedom struggle from the British, uh, the same as in New Delhi uh, for the central government. In 1967, there was a breakaway faction of the Congress that formed a coalition with uh, a left party, and they formed a coalition for three years. Those were very turbulent years. And there was, in particular, a, a peasant rebellion, which was also sort of had an equivalent in terms of urban terrorism uh, in the state, the Naxalite movement. <clears throat> uh, that sort of disruption uh, caused the state legislature and the state government to be dismissed by the, uh, by the central government in 1970. And it was uh, under what is called president's rule uh, until elections were held again. And... In those elections, the Congress came back to power for a full term, five years. But in 1977, uh, uh, the left coalition decided to go it alone, uh, and they won an absolute majority. And then, pretty unprecedented, I think, almost anywhere in the world. So this is a communist government that's democratically elected across seven successive elections. So for 35 years, they were in power. Uh, and a lot of what I'm going to talk about is you know, what the left, essentially, what its agenda was in terms of agrarian development. In 2012, last year, they lost. Okay? And then another faction of the Congress called the Tirumul Congress gained majority. So the environment now is very different from what it has been for the last uh, three or four decades. Now, when they came into power in 1977, they had two main thrusts. Uh, one was to seriously try and implement land reforms. Land reforms legislation was on the books, and all the states in India were saying that they were trying to implement it. But the Congress, the, the power base of the Congress in rural areas was very much the large landlords who didn't want uh, serious land reforms to be carried out. But since now this was a left-oriented party, uh, it was a very important part of their agenda to seriously implement land reforms. And at the same time, they created a three-tier system of elected local governments. Okay, so I'm going to, my first half of my talk is going to be trying to evaluate uh, what, what was accomplished here and what its impact was on agricultural development. Now, some other facts. 
<clears throat> until the 70s, in the 1960s and 70s, the rate of growth of agricultural production, of food grains production in West Bengal was one of the lowest. Okay, the, the, the growth rate was of the order of uh, less than 1% a year. And in 1980, West Bengal sort of shot up to the top uh, of uh, all, the, uh, all the states in India, recorded the highest rate of uh, food grains production growth, uh, something like 55 to 6% per year. So there was this sort of almost discontinuous break. And this lasted until the mid-90s. And what this green revolution, this is sort of a different kind of green revolution from the one that, you know, uh, most people know about, which was in the Punjab, which is in the northern uh, belt of the country, as well as certain other parts of the country. Uh, so this is about 10 years later. Uh, a lot, the earlier green revolution that had happened was targeted mainly at, well, it, it was more effective on larger farms. Uh, and, for instance, in Punjab, which is a wheat-growing area, it was also associated with a certain amount of mechanization of agriculture. West Bengal has a completely different kind of cropping pattern. It's, uh, it's dominated by rice. So it's more uh, oriented towards small-scale family farms. And so the nature of the Green Revolution in West Bengal was quite different, and this is what I'm going to talk about. So there was uh, a large part of the rise in the growth rate was associated with uh, multiple cropping. Uh, so instead of planting crops on the soil once or twice a year, they were planting it three times a year. So there was an effective crop area increased substantially. And there was widespread diffusion of high-yielding varieties of rice. And I'll, I'll show you some numbers right now. In fact, let me just go to that. So <clears throat> trends in farm productivity and wages. Uh, this is uh, – I'll tell you a little bit about the data uh, in a little while. Uh, but this is from a sample of 90 um, – villages in West Bengal from cost of cultivation services. This is pretty good quality data uh, at the farm level. So you see cropped area per farm uh, increasing by about 70% between 1982 and 1995. The fraction of area uh, devoted to HYV, the fraction of area devoted to rice that was devoted to HYV varieties went from 6% to 67%. Uh, the value added per acre in rice multiplied almost five times. And if you look at value added per acre averaging over all crops, uh, it doubled. And these are all inflation adjusted. And the value added per farm, basically farm owners, their incomes increased by about 60% over a 12-year period. Uh, in terms of wage rates for hired workers, so the, the, the poor, the landless, most of their earnings are derived from working on farms. Uh, so if you want to get an idea of, of earnings, uh, of the landless. You see also about a 40% increase in, in real wages and a near doubling of the number of hours of work. So you've got a substantial increase in the earnings of the poorest. Uh, and this is also in sharp contrast to what you saw in other parts of India in the other Green Revolution, where the, the effect was to increase the income of sort of middle and, and large peasants uh, and increase the inequality uh, of income. Whereas here, uh, if anything, it reduced uh, income inequality. Okay. However, since the mid-90s, so this is a story until the mid-90s. After the mid-90s to the current day, uh, agricultural yields, uh, the, the growth rate fell substantially. So they've kind of plateaued. And there's been rising land inequality and rising landlessness. So I'm going to show you some facts about that. 
So now the plan of the talk uh, is... Yeah. Can you go to that earlier slide? Doesn't the increase in cropped area, does that indicate any consolidation of land? No, if anything, no. There's been increased fragmentation of land holdings. So this is aggregating over... Uh, yeah, aggregating over different plots. Okay. But the average farmer has now 10 plots, 12 plots, you know, and they're okay. all separated throughout the village. Do the farmers own the farmland and they can sell in Yes, yes, mostly. I'll show you some of the numbers about ownership. Yeah. Ownership has concentrated even during this period, but the number of plots has increased. Ownership has concentrated. No, that's not, well, I, I'll come okay. to the details about what has happened to land inequality. <clears throat> okay, so the first part uh, of the talk will be uh, trying to evaluate what happened uh, in the first two decades of the left front, uh, which were these two initiatives, land reform and uh, decentralization. And the second part, I will talk about emerging policy areas today. And I'm going to talk about two ongoing policy experiments that I'm uh, working on. One is on marketing supply chains and the other is on credit access for small farmers. And uh, again, I haven't given this kind of a talk before where I'm trying to talk about you know, a whole range of projects, so I, I, I don't know whether I'll be able to time it right. Uh, so I may not be able to cover everything, but you know, anyway, you'll have the slides if you want to follow up, and I'm here to answer questions. And please uh, you know, ask me questions as we go along. Okay, so... <clears throat> I'm going to club together the land reform and the decentralized governance because it'll become clear that the two reforms were uh, intimately intertwined with one another. So these are some of the, the broad questions that I have been addressing in my work. First, what political factors determined the implementation of the land reforms? Second, what were the effects of the land reform on agricultural productivity growth? So how much of that increase in productivity growth can be attributed to the land reform? Uh, what were the effects of the land reform on, on inequality of poverty? And then what was the relationship between land reforms and decentralization? <clears throat> okay, so the research strategy is the following. Uh, this is a massive data collection exercise. Uh, we want to study everything at a pretty disaggregated level, at the household level and at the farm level. So in order to do that, uh, so you have one set of household surveys uh, asking questions especially about household demographics and land. There's a different data set, which are these cost of cultivation surveys of farms. Uh, and all of this is for a random sample of 89 villages distributed throughout the, the, all the agricultural districts of West Bengal, which is about 16 or 17 now. And these surveys cover the period from the late 1960s until 2003. Then the data for the land reform uh, is collected from the local land records offices for the specific villages in question. This is probably the most difficult part of the exercise, is to get reliable data on how much land reform there really was and who you know, benefited from it. Uh, and we use both the official records from the, I mean, this is ex exactly where the land uh, records are kept in those offices. But we also ask households, and we use a combination of the two. Yeah, what was the question? Oh, oh, these are yearly surveys? Or? These are, no, so that is a comprehensive listing of all uh, land reforms carried out for a particular village okay. for each and every year okay. over this period, okay. until 1998. 
Okay, and for the households, we interviewed them mainly in 2004, but you know I have subsequent rounds as well. So we asked them about uh, the extent to which they, their family was, a, was benefited or affected by land reforms, uh, and, then when a, and then we asked them which year it happened. The, uh, that you know the particular incident happened that affected them. So we basically construct a, a yearly panel. So, so I assume this is a property office, and you went to the property office, and they have how the the properties are divided for each person or no, for each family. No, it's more difficult than that. So it's a long story. So initially, the, <laughs> I, I thought it was that way, and then you, of course to get permission to get the land records, uh, you do a lot. And then they say, fine, you go into a land records office. The land records are kept on a plot-by-plot -plot basis. And that makes it imp almost nearly impossible to figure out. Yes. You can take out all the plots, and they are paper, pieces of paper. Okay, you have to open it. You see this plot is owned by so-and-so. But you don't know how much other land this guy owns. Mm -hmm. And you also do not know who Where lives in the same family as this person. So that strategy just doesn't work. So... Uh, but I can tell you in more detail how we circumvented that problem. But that would take me a little afar from you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I once gave a seminar which was almost, uh, I spent an hour describing how to collect this land data. Uh, <laughs> and people got bored eventually. <laughs> okay. The cost of cultivation surveys were collected by a, uh, an office in the Department of Agriculture that does these studies to estimate costs of cultivation. This information is eventually sent to an office in New Delhi because uh, the price of various crops and food grains uh, for public procurement is set on a cost plus basis. So the central government needs information on what are costs. So they have these very careful cost of cultivation surveys. Each farm, there's a very well collected stratified random sample of farms uh, and each farm is, uh, is pursued for uh, five years with very detailed twice a week collection of data of inputs and outputs, you know, extremely meticulous. So, uh, but that data was, is available to us from the early 80s till mid-90s. Uh, mid we don't have farm data after 1995. Partly because the, the person who helped me in that agricultural office is now gone and the subsequent uh, bureaucrats don't want to help me. Uh, okay, then We've collected data from local governments of uh, all the programs that local governments have, have implemented, and these are mainly agricultural development programs. And this is, again, you can construct a panel at the village level. And so basically we are doing a longitudinal analysis at the household farm slash village level. Okay, so now I'm just going to give you kind of the uh, some of the sort of overall conclusions that we have drawn. Uh, instead of talking in detail about any particular paper. So first question, how much land reforms was actually carried out in West Bengal? It was a large amount if you compare it with other Indian states and also if you compare with other countries. So for instance, by the early 90s, uh, about 7% of land area had been distributed as land titles to the poor. And this was compared with less than 1% for almost every other Indian state. And if you compare with Brazil's land reform between 1992 and 2003, uh, that was 5% of land area. The uh, was it something from public land or was it from... No, no, no. Okay. So this was, um, yeah. So this land distribution program, 
there are land ceilings. The land reform uh, laws state the maximum amount of land that a household can own. Uh, and so people who own more than the required than the ceiling, the, the government appropriates the excess land. It's an operation called vesting. And I'll show you data on, on vesting of land. Once it's been appropriated, and that is in some ways the most difficult and cumbersome process because it is often fought by the uh, affected households through the courts. And those uh, court battles often take you know, decades to settle. Uh, but once the, the land has been secured by the government, it's called uh, the land has been appropriated, then that appropriated land is distributed to the poor. And as it turns out, in West Bengal, uh, what the left front achieved after 1977, they didn't really appropriate much more land than had already been appropriated by previous governments. Strangely enough, the difficult thing is to give land away. Okay? And previous governments had not given away much of the land that had already been appropriated. So what, what the left did is essentially distributed the land that had been uh, already appropriated. And uh, in fact, I'll show you the numbers here. So the, the percentage land area that had been appropriated by 1978, and this is an estimate, this is something that we found difficult to get for all the villages, so it's available for a subsample of 34 villages, 34 out of 90 villages. So this is kind of uh, probably measured with some error. But you see 16% of land had been appropriated by 1978. And when we look at the corresponding number in 1998, it's 15%. Okay, the total land area hasn't changed. So basically the left, in fact by its own admission, they did not succeed in appropriating more land from the landers. What they did is they gave it away. So until 78, 1.4% of that 16% had been given away, and by 1998, 5% was given away. There's still a big question, and this nobody really knows the answer to. If they have appropriated 15% of the land, they only gave away 5%, what happened to the remainder? Uh, so I have talked to, even to the land commissioner, the person who was the land commissioner at that time, and he said, you can quote me on this. This is corruption, plain and simple. The the local government officials are using that 10% land for their own benefits. They, the party gives this on a temporary basis to people, to peasants, that in return for getting them to vote for the party and so on. So anyways. Uh, the ceiling. Okay. The ceiling is for a household of five members. Uh, they are entitled to have 12 and a half acres if it's irrigated and 17 and a half acres if it's unirrigated. And then there are adjustments for household size. This is at 1953 legislation. Well, no, it was amended. It, the problem with the 1953 legislation was that it was at the per person level. And then they realized that uh, there were all kinds of ways of circumventing that, so they had to define it at the household level. And that was done in the 1971 amendment. Uh, okay. Now, the percentage of households who receive titles was 15%. Okay? Now, that's a huge number. 15% of households means one in six households uh, received a land title. Okay? Now, uh, but the land was a small, uh, it was about half an acre. Okay? So, the left, again, trying to increase its power base, cut up the land into really small parcels and gave it to as many people as it could. The other land 
reform was, uh, in fact, this is the one that has received more attention in the literature. There's a paper by Banerjee, Gertler, and Ghatak in the JPE in 2002 that reviews the other program, which is the tenancy registration program. So the tenancy registration program says, if you are a tenant for at least three years on a plot of land, you can come to the land record office and become a registered tenant. If you become a registered tenant, you cannot be evicted by the landlord from this point onwards, okay, unless you, know, you, you stop cultivating. And there is a minimum share of the land that the tenant must receive, okay, which depends on whether the uh, landlord is sharing in inputs or not. And if the landlord is not sharing in inputs, if he's an absentee landlord, the tenant is going to get at least 75%, otherwise 50%. So this, uh, this program is sort of a halfway house to a full land reform. So you basically give security of cultivation rights to tenants, okay, and they cannot be evicted and they get a certain minimum share, but they don't have full ownership in some sense. Okay. So that program uh, covered 6% uh, of land area by, by 1998, and the percentage of households registered was 4.4. So in terms of the total number of households covered by this program, it was about one-third that by the land distribution program. However, land that was being leased typically was much larger. It was about one and a half acres on average, and it was high-quality land. So in terms of productivity, you know, it was this reform, as we will see, this reform was kind of more important in terms of agricultural productivity. And not all tenants actually registered. The thing is, uh, so according to our estimates, 51%. Banerjee, Gertler, Ghatak estimate 65%, but they use government statistics, and there's been a lot of dispute about those statistics. So this is what we have collected based on household surveys. So a lot of tenants did not register, but because, you know, the landlord doesn't like it if you register. Uh, and so sometimes they work out all kinds of mutual deals. Uh, uh, but, you know, it, it, it resulted in an increase in the bargaining power of the tenants, even if they did not register. So the amount of land area that was benefited from the, uh, from the tenancy reform was probably bigger, much bigger than 6%. Okay, 6% was the area that was actually registered, but there were other areas which was covered by tenancy, okay, and there the bargaining power of the tenants went up. Okay, and it's very hard to get reliable numbers on hidden tenants. Okay, so they, these were the two pro programs. The sharecropper registration program was called Operation Barga. Okay, so I'll refer to this as OB or Operation Barga. So together the two programs benefited about 20% of the population compared with 12% in Brazil. And it affected about 12% of cultivable area. So it was a big land reform program in that sense. Okay. The other thing to keep in mind is this mostly happened between the late 70s and the late 80s, okay, for about 12, 15 years. Now, so that was one major initiative of the left. The other one was they created a three-tier, uh, the three tiers being district, block, and village, uh, system of directly elected local governments. And they shifted responsibility for delivering various agricultural development and welfare programs to these local governments. So traditionally, these programs were administered by uh, ministry officials of the state government who were quite removed from the local communities. Okay? And not, there were no accountability pressures to, to local needs. 
And what you did is you took away power from those bureaucrats with limited local accountability to people who are elected by local citizens. Now, what were these local governments uh, given authority over? Uh, there were a large range of agricultural development programs. The most important were delivering mini kits, agricultural mini kits, which contained subsidized seeds and fertilizers. Then there was a sub subsidized credit program called the IRDP, which started in 1979. And then probably the largest item in the local government budget, uh, they managed public works programs that created rural assets. So these would be sort of local irrigation, a pond scheme, a road scheme, a drinking water scheme, or building a school, uh, school building. Money for this came to the local government from higher levels of the government. This was 55% uh, is paid for by the central government, 45% is paid for by the state government. They just received this money. They have to decide what to use the money for, what assets will they create, and who will work on them. And one of the main objectives is to provide some kind of employment and earnings to landless poor. Okay, so this was a particular program called JRY. So basically they're creating employment, providing earnings to the landless, and creating rural assets, which benefit the farms. The local governments also played a, a very important role uh, in the land reform implementation. A large part of the problem in land reforms is identifying who owns what land. So as I explained to you uh, in response to an earlier question, it's very hard for outsiders to know who actually owns how much land. But within the community, everybody knows who owns what land. So you need to tap into local information. So the local governments organized these. In fact, these were almost like, um, uh, it was almost like a peasant movement. In fact, the, uh, the Kisan Sabha, which is a peasant organization throughout uh, West Bengal, was also involved. The police was involved. Block officials were involved. And there were these camps, and the purpose of these camps was just to identify who owns how much land in the community and who is a tenant. Okay? And once they had identified it, then they had identified the tenants who needed to be registered, and then they had identified who had more than the ceiling, and then they had identified who does not own any land, so who should get the land. You have to identify who are the right people to receive it. So the local governments played a very big role in that identification exercise. And they worked in tandem with the uh, with the uh, the land rec the land records office and with the police uh, and the agricultural development office of the block. Okay. Okay. So now one broad question. Uh, so let me just mention that a lot of my work is uh, co-authored with Pranav Barthan at UC Berkeley. Uh, so each slide will now be about uh, uh, a particular paper. So one paper, we ask, what was the political economy of this land reform in West Bengal? Now, the left was in power in West Bengal, as I showed from 1977 onwards. The left was also in power in two other states in India. And if you look at these three states, these are the three states which actually did implement some land reform. So clearly, political ideology does play a role. But, you know, and that's the, the popular impression. However, there are some qualifications to that view. So this paper looks at it at the local level. So one is to put, it, put land reforms on the policy agenda for the state. Okay? And certainly I think the left, the state government being left in 1977, uh, put it on the agenda. 
However, the Congress government that was between 72 and 77 before the left came in had already initiated implementation of land reforms. And part of the reason is that the Naxalite, the Peasant Rebellion that had happened in the late 60s gave rise to serious law and order problems throughout the state. It became apparent that to just control the law and order problem, you had to deal with the problem at its source. And this was part of the reason why the Congress government, despite its base being large landlords, they realized now that they had to provide some land uh, to the poor. So it turns out when we look at the data, and if you start looking at the data from 1971, 72 onwards, you don't really see a discontinuous upward jump once the left comes in. You know, you just see a, a slight acceleration in the rate, but it had already started with the Congress. Then, when you look after 77, and you look at different villages, some villages are dominated by the left, some villages are dominated by the Congress. You look at the cross-section of villages, you do not see any pattern uh, of differences in land reform implementation in villages that are controlled by the left front and by the Congress. And then you look at it at the, at the village longitudinally, and over time, the extent of seats in the local government that is won by the left is going up and down. So you're trying to see whether the left is by and large dominant, okay, but its seat share in the local government can go from, let's say, 60% to 75%, 80%. So if you want to control for village dummies, and you want to look at, you know, the, the extent to which political competition played a role here, we find that political competition is probably the one driving factor here. So if the left increased its dominance, it went from 55% to 70%, let's say, you would actually see less land reform implemented in that village. Okay, because it was again being driven by electoral pressure. You see more land reform being implemented in the year right before the election. So this paper, which is in the AER 2010, argues that in order to understand implementation, perhaps electoral competition was the, was the more driving factor. Is there a difference in the type of lots that the left was given away um, versus the type of lots the right? I mean, you mentioned the left was partitioning the lots in very small pieces. Is there a difference? Yeah, I haven't looked at it at that level. Okay. I'm just basically looking at proportion of households receiving land, proportion of land distributed. But I think that's, yeah, that's a good question. Okay. Okay, now this, uh, this exercise was important because it generated a set of instruments that you can use in, in trying to evaluate the effect of the land reforms. You need some instruments, okay, in, in that exercise. So political competition at the local level was driven by what was happening at the state level and at the national level. And so those fluctuations became important instruments in identification exercise subsequently. Okay, the next question is, what were the effect of the land reforms on agricultural productivity? Now, just in terms of background, I mean, maybe you're all familiar with this, that uh, the traditional view amongst economists is that redistribution leads to, tends to lower productivity or efficiency. But land reform is different because of a combination of imperfect credit markets and agency problems in land and labor. There are numerous studies in India as well as many other countries, Indonesia, Pakistan, and even Brazil, that show that small owner-cultivated farms achieve the highest productivity. Of course, there's been a big debate about whether this is really the effect of the size of the farm or the ownership status of the farm, or whether there are some omitted variables. Okay, so maybe it is the case that the small owner-cultivated farms are, have plots which are more fertile, and that can explain this. 
So there's a big debate there. But what I'm saying is at the level of theory, it's unclear because small farms, especially when it comes to rice cultivation, small farms based on family labor have an advantage. To just give you an idea of what that advantage is, I want, I've talked to many farmers and asked them, you know, if you were to get a hired worker to work on the farm, as against, you know, you, you doing it with your own family labor, okay, does it make a big difference? And he says, oh, it makes a huge difference because he said the high-yielding variety of rice, which is a boro crop, is, requires more water. Uh, so the water requirement is higher, as well as it is much more vulnerable to fluctuations in the level of the water. If the water level is too high, okay, then, you know, the paddy which is planted is, is basically going to drown. And if the water level is too low, it's going to dry up. So you have to keep monitoring the water level. And so this means even at 3 o'clock in the morning, somebody has to be watching the water level. Okay. So they do it by rotation within the family, you know, in terms of who's going and watching the water level. But you cannot get a hired worker. And even if the hired worker is there, he's probably going to be sleeping in the middle of the night. Okay? You can't rely on that person. This is similar to, you know, the story that is told about what was inefficient about Russian agriculture, you know, under, in the communes. You know, the sick cow in the night syndrome. If you have a sick cow, you're not the owner of the sick cow. You have to stay through the night to enable this cow to survive. So in the Russian winter, it's only people who own the cow that will stay up through the night and, and see that cow through the night. Okay? So it's exactly that same kind of thing. So ownership and family labor uh, is, you know, so there are good agency reasons why small uh, family farms are much more productive. There are many other you know, studies in West Bengal that, that show this kind of thing. But it always gives rise to identification problems, okay? whether there's some omitted variable. Anyway, so that was part of the reason we were interested in this question. So let's use the land reforms uh, in West Bengal and see what impact it really had. So, so this is a paper in the American Economic Journal published in 2011. We used the farm level panel data and an IV diff, dip of diff strategy where the IVs come from the electoral competition, uh, you know, which is driven by events at the state level and at the national level to identify the effects of the land reform and supply of farm inputs and local infrastructure on changes in farm productivity and wages. And our main findings are the following. Uh, the land title program had no significant effects. Okay? And part of the reason is that the plots that were distributed in the form of these land titles were so small and they were largely infertile because the land that the large landowners were willing to give up was actually the relatively infertile plots. So quite often it was orchard land, or it was a pond, okay, it was not really suitable for cultivation. Operation Barga, on the other hand, has significant effect on productivity at the farm and the village levels. Okay, this was also the, the, echoed in the paper by Banerjee, Gertler, and Gattak, which used data, government data, aggregated at the district level. And this was the main finding of their paper, that you had a significant effect of the tenancy reform on productivity. And we find it also at the farm level, okay, at a much more disaggregated level. So, in fact, let me show you our basic uh, regression results. So, this is the uh, regression. Uh, this is the farm panel, farm productivity, measured by log value added per acre. Regressed on the, the first uh, variable is agricultural mini-kits distributed per household in the village. This is the land title distributed in the village. 
This is the amount of land that was registered under Operation Burga. This is the amount of credit delivered per household. Okay, this is the number of employment under the JRY programs per household. Okay, so the most important factor is the mini-kit program. So you can see that this is the coefficient, uh, always significant at 1%, the mini-kit distribution program. Uh, the land distribution, the land title distribution program has, you know, effects which are not robust, not statistically significant. The land tenancy program has also a significant effect. The coefficient is about the same. Of course, it doesn't make sense to, to, to look at the, uh, the coefficients because the units in which these are measured are completely different. It's like comparing apples with oranges. So I'm going to show you later the extent of uh, change in productivity that is accounted for by uh, each of these programs. What are, what are these kits? These kits contain mainly uh, seeds and fertilizers. Okay. And is it cumulative for like each person in the household that farms is eligible for a kit, or is each year a household is eligible for Each a kit? year a household is eligible. So this is the number of cumulative kits that a household has received. <clears throat> okay. And uh, we have yet another, now, uh, in fact, one of the puzzles in understanding the land reform, uh, the, the, the Operation Barga effect, is that you find that this effect if you believed in the standard Marshallian argument that you're removing a sharecropping distortion, then this effect should be concentrated on farms that are leasing in land. Okay, but a, a farm that is own, solely owner-cultivated, all the land is owned by the household, there should be no effect. However, this effect, this is for all farms, okay, even owner-cultivated farms. Even for owner-cultivated farms, you're finding a huge effect. It's almost the same as what you get when you combine tenant farms and owner-cultivated farms. So how on earth can an owner-cultivated farm benefit from a tenancy reform that's happening in the village? So this was a, big, was a big puzzle, and we worked on it for quite some time, and this is the answer we came up with. So this is yet another paper in the JDE last year. Uh, there's a very interesting pattern of diffusion to non-tenant farms. So what we find is that Operation Barga positively affected investments in minor irrigation through two possible channels. One is that uh, the people whose um, tenants whose plots were registered, now as a result of that registration document, could go to a bank, a state bank, and receive credit. Okay, so that was kind of collateral against the loan. So it increased the supply of credit to these tenant farms. And the second thing is the tenants now had a much bigger stake in working hard on the farm. So and they wanted to be able to absorb the, uh, the boro uh, variety of rice, which was very water intensive. So it increased the demand for water. Irrigation, water markets evolved in these villages. So you got people, wealthier people, who started investing more in tube wells and selling the water to small farms. So we find that effect, there was a positive effect, a significant positive effect of the tenancy program on investments in minor irrigation in the village. And this reduced the price of water for all farms in the village. And this is how it diffused. What would minor irrigation be? Tube, yeah, so these are deep tube wells mainly. Watersheds? Well, yeah, watersheds were less important than the mini tube wells. So, in fact, there was a whole debate about, you know, so there were people who were, you know, obviously took ideological overtones, and there were people who pointed out that, you know, that land reforms were perhaps not that important because the Green Revolution was also accompanied by a huge expansion in tube well irrigation, which is private investment. So what was 
you know, maybe the argument that land, the left's land reforms were responsible was overstated. But what we find is this interesting connection that private investment was stimulated by the government programs for the reasons that I explained to you. It may not have happened anyway. So that's what, so that's what this paper argues is, is the case. So you, you compare a village, you know, you use the panel, and you look at the change in minor irrigation in the village or the price of water in a village as it's reacting to land reforms being carried out in that village compared to other villages where comparable land reform is not being carried out. And you look at the changes. Okay. Okay, so uh, what we find is that 1% land, this, I'm just giving you in words the main conclusions from the previous table. And in fact, I, again, I didn't tell you, those were OLS results. I, I'm not showing you the IV results. Uh, but basically, if you do IV, then the Operation Barga effect gets halved. It goes to about 0.2, but it's still statistically significant. OLS is giving you 0.4. So 1% land area registered under Operation Barga is associated with a significant 0.2 to 0.4%. So the elasticity is 0.2 to 0.4. However, when you instrument for the kits, the, the coefficient remains 0.4. Now the question is, as I explained, you know, you're comparing apples and oranges because kits and uh, Operation Burgar have different units, the, the measure. So you actually have to see how, mu how much kits was delivered and how much land was registered to be able to calculate, you know, decompose the productivity growth into different sources. So this is a result of that decomposition. So it depends on how, how you weight uh, the estimates from different villages. But let me, let me just focus on the unweighted estimates. Total productivity growth in the period 82 to 85 was 22%. The total that our regression explains is 21.7%. Of the 21.7%, the dominant part is coming from kids, is 17%. And the land registration program explains only 4%. So the role of the land registration program is statistically significant, but quantitatively not significant. Why is that? Well, the, the sheer scale even though the land reform was large, you know, in comparison with other states and other parts of the world, nevertheless, it's still, as I showed you earlier, is about covered maybe six, seven percent of land area. Six, seven percent of land area multiply elasticity of 0.4, and you get three percent. So it was not really that large. Whereas, you know, the, the, the point that you raised on the cumulative amount of kits distributed per household was off the. It went from something like 0.2 to two. Okay, so that magnitude was much more important, accounting for this large, this large influence of kids. Moreover, not independent of the reforms, was it the distribution? Okay, so we're going to come to that. Yeah, so that was the decentralization, right? That was what the local governments were delivering. So that's why this paper is called Farm Input Programs, because what this research showed us, we we went in looking to estimate and expecting to find a significant effect of the land reforms. And what we found is that the land reforms were quantitatively not that important. What seemed to be more important were the inputs that were being delivered by local government. So it depends on how you define land reform. Do you define it narrowly in terms of, you know, what is you think of as traditional land reform, distributing land and tenancy uh, protection? Or do you think of it more broadly as a system by which not only do you reform land, but there are all kinds of support services that farms need? So credit, credit 6%, uh, 
the land title program negligible effects, uh, and then the local government spending on irrigation. So this is medium irrigation. This is what you're asking about. Also quite important, 14% here. And in fact, in later periods, it became even more important. The importance of kits kind of reduced substantially. There's more and more uh, fertilizers were available to, in, at a certain point, it reached saturation. But water continued to be important. So this is so the role of the land reform was quantitatively overshadowed by the supply of kits and GP spending on irrigation, and then finally credit. Okay, so then that gives rise to this question. So we have to turn our attention to these local governments and these input programs. So we have a paper in the JDE 2006 which looks at the delivery of these inputs. Uh, how equitably were they distributed within the village? Now, unfortunately, we do not have data prior to the left front because these governments were created by the left front. So we can't compare it against you know, the delivery of inputs by the bureaucrats. We just don't have any data on that. So we are looking at data post-77, again, using the panel. We've actually managed to match each and every program in terms of who was receiving it with the households that were receiving it. So we could ask questions about how well these deliveries were targeted, okay? To what extent were they going to different groups within the village? And what we find is a remarkable pro-poor pro bias within these villages. So, uh, in fact, uh, this is another thing about the land reform. The productivity benefits that occurred, that we estimate, resulting either from kits or from the land reform, were uniform irrespective of the size of the, of the farm. You get almost exactly the same estimates if you restrict yourself to really small or marginal farms, and you get the same effects for large farms as well. So again, from a distributional standpoint, you know this was very unlike the previous Green Revolution, which benefited only the large farms. So these local governments seem to have done a very good job in terms of delivering equitably. And in fact, this is in sharp contrast to other states in India, where now other states in India actually through a constitutional reform in the early 90s, this three-tier system of local government is now all over India. And there are studies for many other states where you see consistent descriptions of elite capture, where these local governments are captured by local elites. And so you don't get a similar equitable distribution. So now coming to this question of the relationship between land reforms and decentralized government, so one argument is, and this argument has also been made by scholars as well as uh, spokespersons for the left party, that you should not focus on the land reforms narrowly. The land reforms had a wider importance. The land reforms ensured that the local governments were not captured by local elites. So the, for the political economy of the reform, it's essential when you create local governments to ensure that small farmers, medium farmers, have the same kind of say as large farmers. Otherwise, all the inputs is going to be hijacked by the large farmers. Is that level of participation um, driven also by the political competition, perhaps, that um, you mentioned earlier? Actually, yeah. So the, the, the JDE paper, again, within villages, there's a distinction between allocation within the village and allocation across villages. We find what was distributed within the village was remarkably unvarying to anything. Okay, so we do not find any effects of political competition there. But politics played a role in terms of which village got how much resources. So we find some substantial biases 
if a village had a lot of landless, if a village had a lot of low-cost uh, households, that village government would end up getting less resources from higher-level governments. But wh whatever resource came to a particular local government within the village was distributed very equitably. <clears throat> so it, is, it has often been argued that the land reforms actually were instrumental in an indirect way. They eliminated the potential for local governments being captured by landed elites. Okay, so this, is, this gave rise to the next question. Well, is this really true? Is there any evidence for it? So I'm going to go to that now. <clears throat> and the other, uh, other aspect of complementarity is that the decentralized governance was also very important for implementing the land reforms because I explained to you the identification exercise, who has how much land, is information that exists at the local level. And the local governments were able to tap into that information. How am I doing for time? Um, we have 15 more minutes. 15 minutes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So this is one quarter of my talk. Let me speed up a little bit. So the second question is, what effects did the land reform have on land inequality and landlessness itself? Did it actually lower land inequality? The argument that land reforms may have helped the local governments do their job is because the land reforms reduced land inequality. So poor people now could go to a village meeting of the local government and ask questions of the local government, saying, why have we not received water? Why have we not received the many kids? To be able to do that, you have to have a certain amount of economic security. Okay, if you're reliant on the large landowner for employing you, and that's your entire livelihood, you would not dare stand up in a village meeting and ask questions. Okay, in fact, people who have studied these village meetings and so on have noted that the discourse is also remarkably egalitarian. Okay, these poor people, they may be bare feet and so on, they show up, participation in these village meetings is, is very high, and, you know, difficult questions are raised by everybody in the village. Of, of the, the local government leaders. So land inequality, lowering land inequality was perhaps one important channel by which the land reforms helped these governments become more accountable. So for that to happen, the land reforms should have had a significant effect in lowering land inequality. So this is a question. This is a paper that we have almost finished. Uh, it's kind of a revise and resubmit, so we are putting the finishing touches on this paper. So this is a study of land, the evolution of land ownership in these villages and how it's been affected by the land reform. So uh, there are massive changes in the land distribution. Just to give you an idea, this is land per household. And there were questions about the extent of fragmentation, which I'm, uh, we, we can actually uh, answer some of that with this data. But I'm now focusing just on the total amount of land per household. You see a dramatic drop in the amount of land. Uh, if you, again, this is a full sample. This is a full household sample of 2,400 households. Uh, this is a restricted sample. It, basically, the difficult part of this research, again, is you're trying to construct a land history for each household over a 35-year period based on recall. And for about two-thirds of the households, the, all the, everything they've told us is internally consistent. Okay, so that's reliable data. For one-third of the households, you know, for instance, there are many households where the person who was the head of the household in the 70s and the 80s died, 
Okay, now his son is now the head of the household. So he doesn't have as good memory about what actually happened to the land of the household 30 years ago. So you get certain inconsistencies. Okay, and we plug those inconsistencies in a variety of ways. Uh, and having plugged it, but the, the numbers are a little bit less reliable for the full sample than for the restricted sample. So all the analysis in this paper is done for both samples. Just check the robustness of the results. So for the full sample, you see that uh, average household used to own three acres of land in the late 60s, and it went down to a uh, little over an acre, one acre. So you have a three times reduction in the amount of land owned by the average household. Okay, and this is, you see a similar order of magnitude, a uh, little bit less dramatic. So for the restricted sample, it's a little over two, but it's going down to below one acre. Okay, so it's about a two and a half times decrease in the amount of land. Uh, this is land inequality, and irrespective of whether you measure it with the Gini coefficient or the coefficient of variation, you get a steady rise in land inequality. Okay? and irrespective of whether you use the full sample or the restricted sample. <clears throat> Proportion of landless households. Roughly one in three households used to be landless in the late 60s, and today more than half the households are landless. And this is actually, the, the entire increase in land inequality is driven just by this. So if you look at land inequality amongst those who have land, that has remained unchanged over 40 years. So what has really changed is the proportion of people who do not have any land at all. Now, so why is landlessness increasing? Why is inequality increasing? So you try and figure out uh, all the factors that are driving it, and there are three main demographic factors. High rates of population growth, high rates of household division. Large joint households have been breaking up into nuclear households. So, for, for example, if you receive um, a plot from the land reform, I mean, you have like seven children, you have to split that. Can you split into seven parts, or do you basically up to you. get your children out of That's up that to land? You. That's right. Uh, okay. So that is really the high rate of population growth. You had to subdivide the land mm -hmm. between the children. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then earlier, quite often, joint families would continue. If three siblings, uh, the whole household used to own the land, and there are three siblings. They would live within the same household and jointly cultivate the land. Increasingly, the three siblings are squabbling, fighting with one another. They want to all go their own way. So they split the land three ways. So that's the other factor. So there's this household division, and you have immigration. And you have about 28% of the households have immigrated into these areas since the late 60s, of which 10% is accounted for by immigration from Bangladesh following the 1971 war. Now, I think there was a question earlier about this. Uh, land market transactions could also play a role. So, for instance, if there were many distress sales, if small land-owning households, you know, having a bad shock, uh, the last thing they will do to, in order to be able to survive is sell the land. Uh, but you could also have land market transactions which have the opposite effect on inequality if large landowners are more likely to sell. So what we do in this paper, we assess the direct and indirect impacts of household division, market transactions, and land reforms using these household land histories covering this period. So let me just show you some numbers here. So this is just the raw numbers. Average household owned 2.8, let me just, this is the full sample, 2.86 acres of land. 
and that household lost about 1.4, so about half of that land was lost. If you break it down by the causes of how they happen to lose the land, most of it, about 80% of it, is accounted for by land division, by breakup of the household and subdivision of the land. Land lost through sales is about half an acre, so this is about 50% as important, but then land was also gained through purchases. Okay, so these, these two, uh, of course it depends on who was selling and who was buying. Was it a large landowner or a small landowner? I'm going to come to that in a minute. Then this was land lost due to the reform and gained due to the reform. And the order of magnitude here is, you know, about one-tenth of what household division was. Okay. Then there are gifts which are difficult to classify what they really are. They're probably land transfers within the household. And then there are other reasons. So now we do a straightforward decomposition. What would land inequality have been if, you know, you close down one of these channels? So if there are these, these incidents where there was a household division, if it had not happened, but everything else that the household did had happened, what would inequality have been? So now if you look at the evolution of land inequality, this is the role of household division. This is the role of land markets purchases and sales of land, and this is the role of land reform. So the rise in inequality is accounted for almost entirely by increasing household division. And both land market transactions, it turns out that most of the land was sold by large landowners and bought by small landowners. So land market transactions on average equalized the land distribution. Okay? And they both contributed to lowering inequality. Okay? Now you look at this and you say, well, uh, so it looks like you know, land reforms had a relatively minor effect on land inequality. But the counter argument is that, well, a lot of this household division may have been induced indirectly by the land reforms. So for instance, a household that owns 25 acres of land, they realize that the land reforms that has just begun to happen, we are better off dividing this land amongst ourselves, splitting the household and dividing ourselves into two fragments, which will own 12 acres each. Okay, then we will not be subject to the land reform. That's better than having the excess, okay, which could be uh, eight acres taken away by the government. So some of the household division could have been motivated by the land reform. So the, the, the heart of the exercise in this paper is to figure out the, in, the incentive of households to divide land and how they, that may have been influenced by the land reform. So, uh, so we have a model in the paper which we take to the data using the household panel, trying to predict the likelihood that the household will subdivide, and also the likelihood that the household will buy and sell land. And this is regressed on recent land reforms implemented in the village. And these are the results. Operation Barga reduced inequality by raising the likelihood of division. So the story I just told you, you do see that in the data. It also makes it more likely that those who owned a large amount of land will sell their land. So it also contributed to the land market transactions that reduced inequality. So there was an indirect effect in reducing inequality. However, the quantitative magnitude of this effect was negligible, just as in the case of productivity, in comparison with the effects of population growth. Okay. We found no significant effects, again, of the land distribution program on division of sales. So overall, when you add the direct and the indirect effects uh, from the village panel regression, only the land distribution program had a direct effect because 
one-sixth of the population received land titles, and that reduced landlessness. Okay, so that has, continues to have a significant effect, even if you look at it 20 years later. The effect is one-tenth of what it would have been at the origin. So the effects are getting diluted over time. These people are getting these land titles, but they can't hold on to it, okay, either through subdivision or through sales. But you still see 20 years later a 10% effect of that. So summary, let me just summarize the findings on land reform and decentralized governance. So this was the first half of the talk, uh, but I'm out of time. But let me just stop here then. Uh, overall summary here is that the land distribution program reduced landlessness and inequality, but it had no significant effect on agricultural productivity. The tenancy protection program raised agricultural productivity slightly, but had no significant effect on inequality. So the effects of these land reforms were benign when you look at effects on growth or on inequality, but they were quantitatively insignificant. And they were dwarfed by other factors, agricultural development programs for productivity, the kits, the irrigation, and demographic changes, fertility and immigration for inequality. I didn't tell you about the results on immigration. You actually also, you know, there could be indirect effects of the land reform on immigration as well. When households are coming in from Bangladesh, they're trying to decide which village they want to settle. And it depends also on whether they expect to be able to get a land title once they settle. So there are induced effects on immigration uh, and so forth. And those effects are, are, are also important. So it's conceivable that land reforms are essential for responsive local governance, but it's hard to find solid evidence for it. But if you, so we've actually teamed up with some anthropologists in West Bengal. Uh, so in six of our villages, we funded them. Uh, we sent them and they lived six months in these villages and constructed histories and stories. And based on that, so we had a symposium in a journal called the Economic and Political Weekly where we have the quantitative analysis, our quantitative analysis, and then their uh, ethnographic evidence side by side. And so there is a lot of ethnographic evidence. So the land reforms really change the political culture of these villages. But, uh, but it is really hard from the quantitative side to find good solid evidence for it. But what we come away with is that when we think of land reforms, land reforms are important, but we have to think of them more broadly than just land redistribution or uh, tenancy protection, you have to think more broadly about a host of farm services that are important for small farms. Small farmers are, you know, they have a land title, but, you know, it's very difficult for them to get credit. It's very difficult for them to figure out how to market their product. So, in fact, the second half of my talk, let me just take two minutes. What was I going to talk about? <clears throat> so, the new challenges for public policy after the mid-90s is that the scope for land reforms and decentralized governance, whatever had to be achieved had been achieved by the mid-90s. Most farms are already owner-occupied. About 95% of the farms and land area is already owner-occupied. So how much are you going to get by trying to protect tenants? There are hardly any tenants left. And most of them are marginal or small. Agricultural yield growth rates have slowed down because there's been a saturation of use of these modern fertilizers. The diffusion of HYV rice varieties, it's not going to go far beyond 70%. You know, the S-shaped it's going to plateau after a while. And in terms of minor irrigation as well, the proportion of farms that had access to water well, used to be about 10% in the uh, early 80s, and it got to about 70% by the mid-90s. So again, you're not going to ex expect a lot of change there. 
Households have shrinking land, as I showed, and it has become very difficult for rural households to eke out a living from agriculture. Young people now, so education has been rising, aspirations are rising amongst them, and they are no longer interested so much in working on the land like their previous generations. So there's pressure now on the state government to create jobs outside agriculture, but it has not succeeded. And if you know anything about Singur, there was a big fiasco, but I don't have time to tell you that. Uh, anyway, so there are also land-related issues in, in, in problems in, in trying to create industrialization, in shifting land from agriculture to industry. So ultimately, I think we have two-thirds of the population still trapped in the agricultural areas, which is relatively low productivity. So we have to ask, what further scope for public policy in raising productivity and incomes of poor households? What are, the, what are the real constraints? So I think the biggest question is, farmers should be diversifying into high-value cash crops. For instance, potato. Potato has the highest value added per acre, uh, much even higher than HYV rice. So what prevents small farmers from increasing area devoted to potato? And it turns out the two main problems are marketing. Uh, most farmers sell to local middlemen who resell in wholesale markets and these middlemen earn high margins. So how can farmers get a better price? How can they bargain better with these middlemen and get a better price? The other is access to credit. Despite the fact that the Indian government has been directing huge amounts of subsidized credit to rural areas, most of it is going to landed wealthy farmers. And if you look at, uh, so we did a study, uh, we look at farmers owning less than one and a half acres of land, and that's about 85% of the population. Only 2% of all farmers are getting any kind of credit from formal financial institutions. And microfinance is not financing agriculture. So my plan was, the second half of the talk was, what can we do in terms of marketing constraints and credit constraints for small farmers? But let me stop here. Yeah. Um, so we have 15 minutes for additional questions. I just have one comment and then one question. Uh, my comment is I know that in... Um, I know that in Africa, I think a study was also done in Indonesia, using like mobile phones to inform smallholder farmers of the market price of goods has increased the, the ability to kind of ask for a higher price, you know, as they're selling it to the middlemen. So that's one interesting avenue. Um, so that was the paper I was going to tell you about. Oh, we did that. Oh, we did exactly that. that. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Um, my other question was... I'm if you want, I can, I can, I'll just flip to... Sorry. Price information to farmers through cell phones generates no average effect oh, on farmer paper? prices. What was the paper? I read the paper that it was in Indonesia. It was with, uh, not farmers, but with a uh, fishery. Um, oh, Rob Jensen, yes, Jensen, yes, on yes. Kerala farmers, yes. Right. Uh, different story altogether. What, what matters? Let me just give you the bottom line here. Okay, what happens in Rob Jensen's? Rob Jensen is looking at the effects of cell phones arriving in Kerala on the southern coast of India. Okay. These fishermen go out to fish, they collect their fish, and the problem they have is which market should I take the fish to? So now that they have cell phones, they can figure out what the price is prevailing in different markets. So they can just decide which market to take it to. So that's a context where farmers can sell directly to customers. Okay. okay? What happens in potato, it turns out, farmers do not have direct access. So here is the supply chain. Farmers sell to village traders or in local markets to other traders 
who sell to wholesalers. But farmers cannot sell directly to wholesalers. And wholesalers in turn sell in city markets in other states. So farmers lack access to these markets. Farmers make use of the cooperatives where they consolidate their volume and try to uh, overcome that kind of the barriers that exist within the internet. In countries like China, there's a, a growing practice where they tend to increase the operation of a farming operation by bringing many farmers together and right. consolidate their volume. Yeah, there's a paper by Jabo Zhang, which is in World Development, 2012, which is about Gansu province in China, in potatoes. Remarkable success story in the last 10 years. The local government has enabled that consolidation to happen. They've intended to like in India or West India? No, no, uh, no. Uh, it's, it's a real challenge because you're also, I think the politics of it is that the traders are politically very powerful. The traders. So the, the traders, in fact, the strange thing is there are many sort of paradoxes in West Bengal politics, but one of the important coalition members for the left was a party called the Forward Bloc. And the Forward Bloc is really a coalition of these traders. So these traders blocked any effort for the farmers to get direct access to markets. Uh, in different Indian states... The government controls who has access to the markets. Yes, yes. So there are these things called Agricultural Product Marketing Committees, APMCs. The APMCs, are, these are committees who regulate these, uh, these markets. And the APMCs are pretty much captured by the traders uh, and the state government officials. And, but there are states in India where you have, let's say, corporates. So there's a particular corporate called ITC. And ITC in Madhya Pradesh in the late 90s for all kinds of political reasons, the party that was aligned with the traders, this was the opposition to that party. So they wanted to break the, the hold of the traders on the APMCs. So they gave the farmers the opportunity to trade directly with this corporate body. And there is a paper which shows the effects of that. And there were significant effects of that. But this has become politically very difficult in, in West Bengal because of these reasons. But now there is hope because the left has been defeated in last year's election. So right now, there's a lot of discussion happening in West Bengal, and it remains to be seen whether the new government is going to embrace some such. Actually, two months ago, the chief minister of the state announced that she was going to allow contract farming, where corporates would buy directly from farmers. Yeah. Um, I have one more question. I was really interested in your identification strategy and how instead of comparing villages with non-reformed villages without, you use this variation in political competition at that level to, um, I guess, de determine the identification. What, what I'm curious about, like, what determines the level of political, political competition, though, and if that, if, say, like, poor villages are more likely to be subject to, like, voter buyouts, or, you know, which then can result in an equilibrium where you do have a land reform taking place, and if that was a problem at all that you... No, that is in, indeed true. That's what makes the, the analysis very challenging. So what we do is we exploit variations in political competition that are explained by shocks happening at the state and the national level. Okay. So, for instance, uh, so it turns out that people, when they vote, vote partly on local issues. Mm -hmm. okay, but they are voting between candidates representing two main parties. 
And their vote reflects partly local issues and local policy issues, but it also reflects partly what is happening at the state and the national level. So there could be, for instance, a state assembly election in which one party loses a vote share. Okay, so those are elections at a completely different level. I see, I see. All right, and that is correlated with how people vote in local elections as well. Okay. So we extract the variation in vote shares at the local level that can be explained by fluctuations. Let's say in the position of the Congress Party in the national parliament. So like mostly candidacy positions, like for local offices. Yes. Yes. Got it. So we've got, the local governments are actually councils. So yes. they're councils, they have about 10 to 15 members. Mm -hmm. So the, the basic measure that we use is the proportion of seats in that council got it. that is from the left or the non-left. And so in the AER 2010 paper, a large part of it is explaining sort of fluctuations in the seats share of different parties at the local level and how it's explained by what's happening at the state and the national level. Perhaps uh, foreign trade can also be like a channel through which uh, farmers can um, overcome middlemen. For example, um, and this is just like an anecdotal uh, thing, like for example, in Mexico, there's also a problem with middlemen, and some of the farmers have formed cooperatives, and they don't trade their products anymore in Mexico. They just sell them like organic coffee to the to US or Europe. So who are the buyers there? In Mexico, it works. I mean, I'm not an expert in the topic at all, but um, what I know is that um, it works similar to India that the farmers have the middlemen uh, in the major cities, and the, the middlemen buy the product at very um, cheap prices. Like, so I think sometimes um, I've seen, for example, manifestations of farmers that they better decide to just give it away on the street because for them it's just like uh, selling to the middlemen will make basic no sense. Then the middlemen have a huge margin, so they have a lot of market power. Uh, I don't think they are not as con politically connected, as you mentioned, but they have a lot of power. So then they have a lot of um, uh, bargaining, uh, political um, power to uh, block reform. But what I've known um, in some agricultural areas, um, for, for example, in the case of coffee, like people have formed cooperatives, and the cooperative sells the coffee, if, you know, like to people that wants to go and buy in the cooperative the coffee, but they have um, um, important like selling strategy to just basically sell the coffee outside. Like uh, this is just an example for an organic coffee cooperative. Right. But uh, I mean, but I have no idea what could be. Right. Actually, there are studies, for instance, uh, Ugandan coffee by Fafshamp and Minton. Sorry, no, that was sorry, Fafshamp and Ruth Hill. That's in EDCC published in two, three or four years ago. And what they found, the pass-through, so this is, again, coffee that's going, that's being exported. And they look at fluctuations in the export price and the extent to which it's uh, uh, changing the farm gate price for the farmers and the extent of the middleman margins. And what they find is that most of it is really expanding middleman margins. So the pass-through to farmers is of the order of 30%. So the middlemen are making about, getting about 70% of the gains. Uh, the pass-through we find in West Bengal is 6% of external price fluctuations. On the plane yesterday, I read a paper on Sierra Leone where th these people cr uh, created a randomized experiment where they paid the trader 5% uh, higher price for high quality, uh, what, was it? what was the crop? I forget what the crop was. They, they paid 5%, uh, I think it was, 
I forget what the crop was. Anyway, 5% increased price, and then they see the extent to which it was passed on to farmers. Zero. Um, so, you know, uh, so I think people are a little bit skeptical of the benefits of sort of trying to intervene through the output markets. Oh, okay. So even if it's exports, then it, it matters whether, as you mentioned with the cooperatives, whether the farmers have some direct access to the exporting houses. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, the traders are not pure traders. But very often they're money lenders also. So if there goes that... Exactly. So this paper, this is by Kasaburi, Lorenzo Kasaburi, who's at uh, Agicon in Berkeley now, uh, but he was at Sloan before. Uh, what they find is that there's no effect on the price. If anything, the price goes down. So this is a remarkable finding. But what they find is that the, tra the traders are lending more to the farmers. So there, there are interlinked transactions, exactly as you said, and most of the effect is going through the credit proportion. But then you, they don't have data at the farmer level, so they can't evaluate the effects of that credit on the farmers. How much benefit did the farmers receive? Or was that credit price, was it at a subsidized rate or was it at market rate? But using some indirect methods, it looks as if the credit, there was no implicit credit subsidy there either. So there was increased credit, but that did not account for increased pass-through to the farmers. Seems a very difficult problem overall. So where there is more hope, I think, and that was, I was going to end on a hopeful note, is in credit, directly in credit. So uh, access. Of, so this is a microfinance. We've designed a microfinance product to help farmers finance agricultural operations, particularly potato. And. Uh, the bottom line I was going to show, so this is a randomized experiment with this microfinance product. Uh, let me just show you. So our product is called Trail. The other one is called Group-based, so joint liability-based microfinance. Repayment rates, our product is doing much better than the traditional group-based. <coughs> Financial inclusion, these are take-up rates, much higher for Trail than for the group-based product. Continuation rates, also higher. And then effects on cultivation, borrowing. Uh, let me just show you the bottom line. Uh, effects on acreage devoted to potato, very significant effects of trail, but also of GBL, but not statistically significant. But when you look at effects on output, uh, uh, revenues, value added, the rate of return in potato achieved by our loan uh, I, in fact, we just revised the numbers this morning. I got it from my co-authors. 180% return on potato. With uh, GBL, the return was 60%. But the cost of credit is about 20%. Trail is the product that we designed. It's called Trader Agent Intermediated Loans. These are individual liability loans where we get these traders to act as commission agents. And they recommend borrowers, and they get a commission based on the repayment of the loans. So I think this is another thing that, that this is, an, so the idea I'm really excited about, by and large, is you've got this traditional sort of set of traders, and, you know, a lot of the debates, for instance, in marketing, there's a FDI in multi-brand retail a bill in Indian Parliament, which is being debated. And the way everybody is talking about it, this is going to, if 
Walmart can go to India and buy directly from farmers. It's going to put all these traders out of work, okay, which is supposed to be a, a massive tragedy, okay, but of course nobody knows what's happening to the farmers, all right? But it's, it seems to me it's not, you know, I think the kind of conglomerate forms that we are likely to see. Walmart will use these agents, these traders, as agents, so they'll become intermediaries. And if you design the right kind of incentive system, you can design, so this is the, the, the product that we have designed. We are using these very traders, lenders, to act as agents. And if you get their incentives right, okay, then you can get sort of formal institutional finance flowing down to the farmer and achieving very high rates of return. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, two quick questions. Um, so group-based would be um, things like running bank, that... Um, so these are five-person groups. They have to self-form, and then they qualify for a loan. And then these are joint liability loans. Okay. Now, the other question, the real question I wanted to ask was, going back to land, um, land reforms for a moment, um, I, I, I don't know if you did, uh, outside Western Gupanga, look at um, land reforms and other, other clients to see what impact it had on, um, on productivity, because a thing from the results that you showed, it seems to me that um, the rate, the um, rate, the implementation, there were lots of implementation flows with all, how much of the land that was expropriated actually went back to, to farmers. You know, so could, could, because one would think that even things like having more access to land increases your credit and things like that, um, overall productivity and, and equity. So how does it compare with other yeah, so I think, good question. Uh, the problem is that it took us 15 years to do this work on West Bengal. <laughs> Plus, I know a lot of people in the government. The finance minister of West Bengal, was, he was actually, a, he was my professor. Ashim Das Gupta. Oh, earlier. Yeah, earlier. And, and he, he actually gave, you know, wrote all the letters and made the phone calls that allowed all the bureaucrats to give us access to their records. And also, in order to be able to go and conduct household surveys, you have to get the permission of the local government and so on. Uh, so for all of that, you need all that permission. Then I know the language, and I have trained, I have about 150 people working for me who are collecting data for the last 15 years. And now they're working on these projects on marketing and credit. So you've got to build up this infrastructure. So now, people ask me this question, so I need the corresponding support and infrastructure. That has to be built up. <laughs> now it turns out the neighboring state of Bihar. Bihar is the other extreme of West Bengal. Bihar has been trapped, you know, in very, high, very high inequality of land. Uh, the politics of Bihar, you know, both e economically backward, you know, the, the lowest per capita income amongst all Indian states. It's doing very well in the last six or seven years because there's been a political transformation in, in Bihar. So Bihar now is achieving the highest growth rates in the country because of this political transformation. And it turns out the chief minister of that state is extremely interested in land issues in one respect, but not in another respect. He called in the land commissioner from West Bengal who had implemented the land reforms in West Bengal. And he wanted to know, because there's a lot of pressure for land reforms in Bihar, and he wanted to know, you know, what was done in West Bengal to see whether they, he should try something in Bihar comparable. And he heard everything, and he heard the recommendation of the Land Commission in terms of what they had to do. And then he apparently thought about it, 
and then decided he was not going to go into it. <laughs> the pressure from landed elites in Bihar is just too great. Mm-hmm. But the problem that he's run into is, in, in order to industrialize, he, you need to acquire land to give to industry. And that land acquisition process has become the most difficult in all of India now. The left also in West Bengal, part of the reason they lost this election is that they called in a big industrial house and gave them land and used the power of eminent domain to take land from presence and, and gave it. And then there was a peasant rebellion as a result of that and the opposition party capitalized on that. And you know, So land acquisition is the most difficult, politically the most difficult thing to do. So he's now concerned about how he can get the land acquisition process going in Bihar. So he's called me in now. And he wants me to now do a study in Bihar and propose a particular system by which the land acquisition process is going to be... Uh, so they're going to bring out a bill on land acquisition. So I have now, just last month, I told him, if I want to study land acquisition, I can't study it in abstraction from land reforms, in the land system. So I've told him, if you can do X, Y, Z, then I can go in and start a project on Bihar. Uh, I haven't heard back from them. <laughs> Okay, thank you. I think uh, yeah, we run out of time. So thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. Okay.